and welcome to episode 41 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, how are you? I'm hyped to be doing some spoilers again with you. Yeah. So hyped. I'm doing, I'm doing great. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to answer your question. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the window is open only for so long. Then it gets closed aggressively. Uh, yeah, when Stan opens a window, he also shuts the door. <laughs> <laughs> is that how it works? Also with us here in Chicago, the godfather, Dave Harbarger. I am so ready to take a shot at the throne, you guys. Well, you only get one shot. You might miss your chance to blow. Your opportunity only comes I, once I'm, in a lifetime. My name's Zach. I'm you on know. the north side of Chicago. Let's keep this moving. <laughs> That's the warden in the house. <laughs> Last but not least, we have a very special guest this episode, a fellow modern content creator. She writes articles, she streams, she's constantly encouraging other Magic players on Twitter and offering her unique perspective in the Dive Down Super Secret Slack channel. All the way from across the pond, it's Emma Partlow. Good evening, everyone. How are we doing today? Yay! Oh, man, our first guest host. Like actual co-host. Oh, yes, that's true. I know all about friends because we have a monarchy in England, so <laughs> let's get this ball rolling. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> For this week's episode, we've scoured the full throne of Eldraine spoilers and have each picked cards to discuss because we believe they have the greatest modern potential. We won't be breaking down any events this week since it looks like high-level modern events are a bit on a break right now, but we will wrap up with a listener question. First, let's start with some housekeeping. We are extremely thrilled to share that the Dive Down is now sponsored by Manatraders.com. Yeah, yeah. Manatraders.com. Big news. We did it. Hype, hype, 41 hype. episodes. <laughs> now we can say the words Manatraders while getting moderately paid for it. <laughs> Ostensibly. Now I can tell my mom that I've turned my passion into a career. <laughs> and wait, wait, <laughs> no, wait, not art? <laughs> Graphic design is really just kind of like something I do to pass the time. A side hustle, right. I drew that little turtle on that page, and I sent it off to the art school, and they accepted me. Is that how you got into college with me? I'm, just, I'm yeah, stunned. That? We've been huge fans of Mana Traders for a long time, and we've been talking about the service basically since our first episode. So we are incredibly thankful for their support. If you're not sure what Mana Traders is, it's a Magic the Gathering rental service. So we on the Dive Down primarily use it to rent decks for Magic Online, but you can even rent paper cards as well. It's a great way to familiarize yourself with a variety of decks and strategies, whether you're playing modern, standard, popper, or practically any other constructed format. Mana Traders makes it easy and affordable to get better at magic without buying new cards all the time. I do it both ways. I guess I rent cards and buy them all the time, but that's that's the cross I bear. We have an addiction. <laughs> One of the perks of our sponsorship is a discount for listeners of the Dive Down. So if you're not already a Mana Trader subscriber, you can sign up with promo code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, to get 10% off your subscription fee during the first three months of service. We'll also have a link in the show notes that you can use to go directly to Mana Traders as well and sign up uh, with a 10% off. Yeah, I just want to say, if you haven't tried this before, it was uh, life-changing for me as far as magic went to finally take the dive and do the rental service. I started it a little over a year ago and 
have been able to try so many different decks in modern. And I, I think it's absolutely worth your time. And they definitely, I think they live up to their tagline, which is be a better magic player. I think, uh, Mana Traders is one of the great ways to do that. So thanks again to Mana Traders for their support. And thank you, the listener, for using promo code the Dive Down next time you sign up. Of course, we also want to send a special housekeeping thanks to Alexander W. for joining our Patreon. And shout out to Spencer H. and Sean G. for increasing your Patreon tiers. Thank you all for being a part of the Dive Down Nation. Now with all that out of the way, let's dive into Throne of Eldraine. Man, this set. So good. So strong. Knights. Castles, lords, wizards, mm-hmm. swords, women with swords, <laughs> food. I like food. <laughs> Welcome everybody to Eldraine, <laughs> the latest plane for uh, in Magic: The Gathering's uh, planes set. It's called the multiverse, Dave. <laughs> you know that multiverse. So oh, it is the multiverse. So God, totally did not stick the landing there. You bowled a two ninety, Dave. Sorry. So you know, like usual, we uh, we have our top picks for out of the new sets. And before we dive into that, we just wanted to do kind of a little bit of a level set of the way that we tend to talk about or think about spoilers on uh, the dive down. So I know we've talked about this a couple of times, but uh, we just kind of wanted to say, uh, take everybody on a quick run through of what we kind of think about when we're thinking about what makes a card enticing for modern play. And basically there's three factors that we usually think about when it comes down to whether a card is going to work in modern or not. And those are cost, power level, and fit. And we go through these really quickly because we talked about them before. The first one I'm going to start with is cost. Okay, so when we say cost, we're talking about converted mana cost of cards. And it really is kind of the biggest uh, key factor for deciding whether a card is going to be playable in modern or not. And that is basically... Because there's so many cards in modern, you want them to be as cheap as possible. So whenever we review a set, or whenever I review a set, the first thing I do is look for cards that have either cost reducers or are really, really cheap. And what that means is, on a spell, I want it to be free or one mana. On a creature, I want it to be like one or two mana. On a planeswalker, I want it to be three mana. And you can kind of extrapolate from there. But the key is, the, one of the first flags that I look for on a new set is stuff that's really cheap or that I know has ways to get cheated into play. I just want to st- stress and point out that we don't believe this is what it takes for a card to be modern playable flat out. This is a card that immediately draws attention. So it's not a guideline to determining straight up. This is cards that warrant immediate attention fit these criteria. Yeah, I think this is the easiest one to start with, too. That's why we talk about it first. So you're, you're totally right. Because, of course, you know, Ulamog, the Ceaseless Hunger, is, is modern playable. but Yeah, but only in one fringy deck. Yeah, only in one fringy <laughs> deck. <laughs> Cries in Russian. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, a little bit of a teeth cut there. Oh my goodness. Well done. <laughs> so after cost, the next thing that we that we look at to help identify cards that have the possibility of being playable in modern is power level. Basically what this means is, does the card have a new, powerful, or unique effect? And is it able to warp a game around it in some way? So cards like this that have kind of piqued our interest in the past are things like Arclight Phoenix or Emrakul or T- uh, T3 Fairy or any of those kind of things. Really powerful cards. Urza. Urza. Yeah, new, new Urza. His Lord, Lord Highness of the Throne. Um, just really powerful cards that provide clear card value or clear win the game potential. Sort of no matter the, the mana cost at that point, sometimes you're kind of just keeping an eye on then ways that you can make them cheaper or make them get into play in a way that... that um, makes them worthwhile. The last factor that we look at is fit. And what that means really is, where is this card going to go? Where's a new card going to go? 
the best way to think about it is that mostly we're going to look for things that extend other existing archetypes or archetypes that are right on the fringe of being playable already, right? So a card that brings this, like a value card, for example, that improves on something that's already in Jund or a deck that wants value, for example, that's a good tip for for that it could be playable. For example, you know, Assassin's Trophy was a card that kind of made a lot of sense as something that extended what Jund was able to do out of the box without stretching what it was doing. Another way that we think about this is if a card is a duplicate of another known powerful effect, like Baral from uh, Aether Revolt that took Sto- Storm from a fringy deck into a tier one deck simply because they went to, to having copies five through eight of Goblin Electromancer, essentially. And the last one is a card that pushes a fringy archetype over the edge. So it's a little harder to kind of make a called shot on something like this, but something, think about like mechanics like cycling and things like that just kind of help things move back towards the, the top of where they could be. So those are kind of the three things that we usually think about when we're looking at spoilers. How much does it cost? Is it super powerful? Does it fit in a deck that already is already existing that we can build and improve by adding this card? So Emma, that's just kind of the way that we do it, or if I've thought about it on the dive down, what do you think about kind of when you're looking at a new spoiler, where, where do you go or what? how do you start to figure out what might make it? So I have a different approach when it comes to looking at previews. I think it's very easy to treat stuff as in, in a vacuum, you, know, you treat it independently. You don't think the other variables, because we all know that modern's a very broad and diverse format. There's a lot of variables that can change these cards. Um, so I tend to wait like a couple of weeks and see how they do in standard because if something's inherently powerful in standard it means it's got a place for it in modern um a recent example is like arc like phoenix um until you know faithless Luton hit the hit the banhammer um but if if something's like really powerful in standard i kind of think that's probably got some legs in modern and there's a couple of cards i want to go over um that i think will highlight that and will show some quite some power level in modern as a result i don't tend to get too focused on it i just kind of just see what happens like it's very easy to fall in the trap of treating stuff in a vacuum because you know modern's so big it's very hard to see how the cards will actually perform yeah it's actually i think the hardest part about evaluating the spoiler especially when before you have the whole set like if you're trying to do if you're trying to do re, like reviews as the set comes out especially if you're doing standard reviews it's really hard to understand like how a card fits in with the entire set design but then you know, some of the things that Dave mentioned in terms of where does this card fit? Does it require a whole new deck to be built around it, a la Hollow One or something like that? And I think that's really challenging to see the complete picture of, you know, 15 years of cards or so. A great example is Bant Soul Herder. I don't think anyone knew that Soul Herder would become a modern deck. Everyone just thought it was a really good limited card. But now we're seeing is like a what, tier two, tier three strategy. So, you know. I like surprises, don't get me wrong, but it's very hard to to evaluate like these kind of cards. So the four of us on the dive down, we at this point basically only play modern. And am I wonder if part of your perspective is shaped by the fact that you play a lot of other formats too. Like you're not as pigeonholed as we've we've been. So I've, I play like eighty percent modern. Um, the other twenty is pauper, and pauper is really hard to evaluate because. <laughs> It's that format's just a mess at the moment because Astrolabe exists and Core Sky Fisher. I was gonna say Astrolabe is good in both at least, it's, huh? It's good in Legacy as well, which is also a problem. <laughs> All right. So now that we've gone over kind of our card evaluation fundamentals, let's talk about the mechanics and themes in Eldraine a little bit because there's some novel ones here that are pretty interesting. So 
and we can, by evaluating the themes, we can see if any of them seem like they might be pushed enough to have some kind of modern play. Because sometimes a theme in a set is going to be standard viable, might be fun for limited, but it might not have the constructed shops to be able to be pushed enough in the set design to allow for cards to see modern play. So I think the classic example of this lately, as far as being able to evaluate a mechanic and expect that something would make it into modern, was Spectacle recently just because it's a cost reduction mechanic and so that was a huge red flag to be able to look at it and go okay if there is a you know i feel like there's probably going to be a card here that's going to make it so it's definitely worth my attention to pay heed to what these all of these cards are so just wanted that's the reason that we're thinking about that is is there kind of any spectacles in this set that make it easier for us to see that there's a power level uh, that makes sense for modern no, for sure, Dave. That's a good reminder. And I think the first one we'll talk about harkens back to one of the card design tropes that we've seen in the past that have proven to be modern playable, and that's kind of a modal card in Adventures. So essentially what an Adventure card is, is it a, it's a creature card, but each of the cards that are Adventures has this kind of alternative characteristic and like this little tiny subset frame in the lower left that can be cast as the creature's adventure. So that's kind of like an instant or a sorcery, typically. That's going to be a spell of some mana cost, and it's going to do something, yeah? And then when the spell is cast as an adventure and resolves, it then goes into kind of a special exile zone where it's like on the adventure. And then at some point, you can cast the creature side of the card for its uh, CMC casting cost in the upper right-hand corner of the card. Alternately, you can never cast the adventure at all and just cast the creature uh, as is. So it gives you kind of the option to cast a spell, get a creature back later at some point, or just cast the creature as is. And most of the creatures have some sort of you know, interesting ability. Uh, many, most of them aren't vanilla. That's correct, right, y'all? No, at least one of them is. At least one. Isn't the isn't the Goldilocks vanilla aside from the bear? Well, I don't. I don't really need to get into every one of them. But the <laughs> we vast, should. Know. The vast majority <laughs> of them are not vanilla. So, as I mentioned, the spell side has to resolve. But what's cool about it is you can pay for things in installments, right? So, if you just need to cast the creature as is, you can. If you can pay for it for the spell up front and then pay for the creature later. You can do that as well. But what's really important, I think, is the spell side really wants to be relevant for your deck, right? And then getting the creature on the back half is going to be gravy on top of that. I think, and I think we'd all agree on this, is that the adventure creatures are pretty reserved. Nothing about many of them screams too busted, at least in modern. I think there's plenty that are very powerful mm-hmm. for standard. But I think there's only a few that we might consider for modern right now. Yeah, I totally agree. I do feel like this is a mechanic that's a little sneaky in some ways where it just becomes sort of like how there's a chance that a totally innocuous creature back half will be worth it value-wise for someone to just get as extra, as extra material off of a card that they have. So it's definitely something that I would have my eye on, and I think there's a good chance one or two are going to be good enough. But from my evaluation, so I think the mechanic is very pal- powerful, but my evaluation of the cards is that there's nothing that's really a huge standout here. Yeah. I think some things that will come up more in modern than they will in standard is that if the adventure card ends up in exile for any other reason than by the resolving kind of trigger, it doesn't give you permission to cast it as an adventure spell. So let's say your creature gets path to exiled. 
you can't then cast that back out of exile. Or if someone, say, strips your hand and puts that in your graveyard and then later exiles your graveyard, you can't cast it from there either, only if you cast it as an adventure. So it's kind of like a special little exile zone, like if something gets exiled from your hand with Karn or something like that. This brand new exile zone is one of the things that is super interesting to me about the adventure mechanic entirely, because it's just this whole new part of the game that opponents can't interact with. I mean, they had to do it, right? They couldn't make every single one of these cards to be Eternal Scourge, <laughs> basically, which is what that would have been. It's been, you know, super resilient to exile effects for with 20 cards. Seems like it would have been kind of kind of a downer overall. A card that acts in a very similar zone is Karn Sign of Urza, where it exiles a card with a silver counter, and then you're able to get silver counters back. So I wonder what the thought was behind not having an adventure counter or having a creature exiled with one. I wonder if there's some sort of mechanic we're going to see or some sort of thought process behind that because they played around in this exile utility space before, but this is a new way of them doing it. So adventure, powerful, but we'll see how many cards actually make it. So we have Adamant, also appearing as an ability word in Throne of Eldraine. And basically these spells reward you for paying monocolor mana for a spell. So if a spell is three and a red and has adamant, it'll be something like, if you paid three red to cast this spell, do X. So a lot of these are interesting, will be good in standard, but none of these seem super pushed. Typically, right now, we haven't seen one that costs less than three CMC for adamant to work, and less than three colors of adamant. So they're kind of higher costed, kind of higher, you know, involvement. So it's something that is not for modern, as we talked about Modern wants a lower mana cost or lower investment, and if you have to be monocolored and pay at least three mana, that's a kind of high bar for Modern. So I think it's not impossible. We see some sort of spell in the future that might be playable with this ability. I think it's very interesting. But for right now, all these look more pushed towards limited or standard than anything for Modern. So also in favor of Eldraine, um, leading up to Pharos, because we're going there after Eldraine, uh, we've got a nice cycle of... Uh, like devotion, devotion lands, I guess you call them, like monocolor, non-basic lands. Um, they all have interesting abilities as well. Um, like for example, the the white one, you pay four mana, you make a one one. Um, the green one is really interesting because you ramp from four mana to six mana, um, which works really well with a primeval titan in modern, uh, for example. Um, but yeah, I can see these sliding into like monocolor strategies in in modern. Um, they do have a criteria where you need to. I want to say you need to have like a, a basic of that type into play. Like you need to have a forest. Yeah, the rare ones have to have a four, have to have a single basic that matches. The common ones have to have three to come and untap. And that's the thing that's a little bit higher of a burden, I think. Yeah, I think the rare ones would definitely see play. Like, for example, I, see, I definitely see the white one in Soul Sisters or like some sort of mono white tokens kind of strategy. Um, the green one, I can probably see in some sort of Titan deck, not. An established one right now, but I won't be surprised to see another primeval titan deck come as a result of this because you know you get to cheat on mana essentially. Um, they're all really interesting. Um, I do think they're meant more for standard just to set up for Pharos, but it wouldn't surprise me if we saw some like fringe play, like utility play in like modern. I think they look really nice. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, people are really excited about the blue common one, I know, and I think we'll be talking about that. It's absurd. <laughs> See, I, 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 have, I think it's absurd for a different reason, probably. <laughs> Shane is not a buyer of that card. <laughs> I think it's interesting, but um, definitely, you know, I saw the people talking today about Maloku being combined with that and Time Warp. So I think there's some, some pretty interesting, scary stuff maybe going on with that. 
Also to note, in sta- we're talking about standard for a minute. Also interesting to note, there's no field of ruin, field of ruin in standard now. So these are going to be really, really good. Like you can't. How do you deal with it? Like there's no stone rain essentially. They never go away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You there is sorceress spyglass, so you can name the sure. activated abilities of these lands for what it's worth. Sure. Or assassin's trophy. Yeah. Yeah, not as easy to run as Field of Ruin, though. It's a good point. So anyway, I think that we think there's potential in these monocolor lands. We're probably not going to talk about any of them individually today, more than we have, but um, good good utility use out of a lot of them. I do think that you really need to make sure that you are going to untap these. These are going to come in untapped if you're going to play them, because some of them are really, really bad. I mean, they're really, really bad if they come in tapped. So the common ones are a little bit more dangerous, I think, than the rare ones, but we'll, we'll see what happens. It's nice that they're fetchable. That's that's the big thing that's interesting about them, too, is that you can have your flooded strand and go grab the uh, Mystic Sanctuary or whatever the blue one is called and, and kind of go for it. We'll see if that play actually comes to a modern tournament near you or not. <laughs> Mar tournament, but kind of far away. Yeah. Yeah, a far away one. They're all far away from me. I never leave the house, as you guys know. So <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of a cell phone there, but okay. Yeah. So the next mechanic we want to talk about really quickly, just because it's so strange and it's notable in the set, is food. Very esoteric. <laughs> food is like the weirdest mechanic I think I've ever seen in, in a magic set. Both theme and the fact that it exists. It's sort of like an artifact matters that gives some life gain. I, I just want to say really quickly, you know, it would be cool if there was a card that really made a great use of a bunch of food tokens that was powerful enough for modern, but I just don't think there isn't. So I think that this one definitely just kind of kind of goes. Uh, so I don't think we need to talk about it much more than this. Food is great, but not not for modern. Yeah. So the next mechanic that I'm excited to talk about is drawing your second card, which is something that I love to do. Sometimes I don't even stop at two. I'll draw a third or a fourth card if I can. <laughs> this definitely happens regularly in modern. So we think there's some potential that some of these cards might see a home or, you know, might be tested at least. Though we do think that on some level, R&D over at Wizards of the Coast knows that it's unlikely to make something with too good of a triggered ability here. So these are important to keep an eye out for other cards with this mechanic in the future. Maybe becomes a more consistent thing to play around with moving forward. Yeah. When I was reading the spoiler, I was looking for Young Pyromancer. You know, I was like, is there is there a young pyromancer style card in here? And there is. It's called Unlikely Alliance, mm-hmm. I think. And it is an enchantment that makes a, a creature when you can when you draw your second card. I really felt like I really feel like that's not powerful enough. Like it really needs to be attached to a creature that can attack to make it worthwhile. So uh, unfortunately, a cool mechanic that had potential, but it's not going to get there for for modern this time either. So I think, sadly, that means that all of the mechanics themselves in, in Throne of Eldraine are not really uh, up to snuff for what modern needs power level-wise, except for potentially the monocolored lands that we talked about and uh, adventures. And so we'll see when we talk about actual, actual spoilers where they kind of fall from there. Mm-hmm. Real quick, I just want to point out that I think I kind of like this personally, and we've had a lot of shakes with modern with War of the Spark and Modern Horizons. So I like that we have a set that, while clearly good and powerful, is not like, oh God, here we go again. So I am in a situation where I'm okay with only a couple cards filtering into modern because of how wild things have been lately. Emma, you had a parting thought? I did have a parting thought. I think in terms of Eldraine, I think it's a lot. it looks a lot softer on modern than what Modern Horizons and War of the Spark has given us. I think 
both of those sets were quite heavy into modern, as in they influenced it quite a lot. Mm. So it's kind of nice to have a set that does medium to less impact compared to what's happened over the last few months. I think modern could do a little bit of a break given what's happened in the last four months. Yeah, isn't that right? I totally agree. Uh, and it's, uh, I think there's plenty of powerful cards, but it doesn't feel, feel like there's 50 of them or that it's going to change the format uh, to me either. Yeah. Well, we're still in a in a Stoneforge Mystic modern like that's still that's still happening. You know, there's no faith for suit in a Hogak. We're still settling from that as well. So it's a lot of peak and troughs at the moment. So I'd be kind of glad if there's a couple of months of just like peace, I guess. <laughs> An armistice, <laughs> like, if you will. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll we'll see if some of these cards don't actually blow things up. And I think one of the cards you're talking about, bright and early, is going to be one. Mm, I agree. So one of the cool things about our super secret Slack channel and the Dive Down Nation at large is that in preparation for this episode and even Throne of Eldraine coming out, the people organized their own survey of Throne of Eldraine to measure what they predict might be some of the most interesting cards or overall the power level of the set. So shout out to KZ for organizing that. But some cards that people voted on from our Slack group that... Uh, they're really hyped on included deafening silence once upon a time emery lurker of the lock and hushbringer so like these four examples were cards that at least 85 percent of our patreon community members our active patreon community members voted on as sure to see modern play Mm -hmm. so time to talk about some car individual cards and i think we should do this and we should start our story with the words that have begun so many great stories. <laughs> uh, a little card called Once Upon a Time. Right, so Once Upon a Time, it's a one generic and green mana for an instant with an interesting effect. Uh, the card reads, if this is the first spell you've cast this game, you may cast it without paying its mana costs. And what that does is you can look at the top five cards of your library, you may reveal a creature or a land card from among them and put it into your hand Put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. That's like seems really good. It's like free spell. Who like who loves free spells? Modern format apparently. Um, <laughs> Number one criteria is yes. it free? Yes, <laughs> can be free. But no, this this card looks insane in modern. Like the potential, the ceiling is so high. Um, there are so many decks that I can think of that want this. Um, the first one being Neo Brand, the Neo Form combo deck because it just allows more consistency to turn one or turn two people. Um, I also think it can go in Tron as well, and I'm willing to try that out when it comes out. I think... Yeah, me too. I think it's it's not quite as good as Ancient Stirrings in terms of power level, but I do think it's better than like Sylvan Scrying. So I can see myself cutting some Sylvan Scryings to see like how that performs. Um, however, um, Mono Green Tron is not really creature heavy, it's quite light on creatures because it's got so many cantrips. Um, I think you need to build the Tron deck a little differently to compensate that. Because once upon a time, doesn't hit stuff like Ugin, it doesn't hit Ownstone, doesn't hit Khan, and you kind of need to hit those. That's where Ancient Starons is so good. Um, but yeah, as a Tron pilot, I'm quite excited to try it out because I think it has some real potential, and I'm quite excited to see what it does. It's so wild to me that people that it's possible that it might be better than Sylvan Scrying just because <laughs> Sylvan Scrying gets you exactly yeah. what you want. Yes. And so so can you guys 
do you guys have any, I mean, Shane plays Tron some too. Do you, do you, you, either one of you guys have any thoughts about that might help me understand how it can be better than scrying? I honestly have a hard time really seeing how it is better because like we talked about many a times is the goal of Tron is to make Tron, right? And unless this mathematically via simulation comes out (laughs) to me, like, no, I mean, this this is, is, no, this, this, this is, this has to be simulated. This has to be simulated via a computer model to me because I will not, I'm I'm not going to be going by how it feels. I'm I'm ignoring Zach laughing listeners. Um, So I'm not going to be going like how it feels to cast one and like find the Tron land I want versus the consistency that Sylvan Scrying can offer over hundreds and hundreds of games. So I think that this is going to be some of the first things that people do model out and run Sims on and say, okay, over 100,000 games having the turn one once upon a time versus your turn two Sylvan Scrying, what benefit that offers. Didn't somebody post in the Slack an article where some guy ran a hundred thousand game simulation? I thought Karsten did. About, no, Karsten is I don't, not yet. It was not Karsten. It was, it was someone on Reddit who yeah, ran Yeah, someone it. on Reddit did it, yeah. Right? Uh, with and Amulet Titan, I think, or something like that. It was, with, it was with Amulet Titan as well. They did, oh, they did that one too? Mm. It, it was definitely with Tron, and they and they said they think that it's better than Sylvan Scrying after their their simulations, which I was kind of like so like wildly counterintuitive to be like a general utility impulse effect is better than a tutor is is very interesting to me. It's clear. I mean, this card's clearly powerful. So, what what other decks do you think it fits in, Emma? Um, I think Amulet Titan wants it definitely because. Most of Amulet Titan is lands and creatures that want to get more lands out. So I think that wants it absolutely. Um, I've heard a lot of people ask about if it goes in Bogles, and the answer is no, it does not go in Bogles because the London Mulligan exists for a reason. <laughs> and you for don't, Bogles? You don't need to. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> so, so people have been like, oh, the, so the thing is with Bogles, if like a green or white card gets spoiled, everyone just goes, does this go in Bogles? And most of the time it's no. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But everyone's been like really high on Once Upon a Time because there's a lot of hype for it because it's like a really good free spell. And I'm like, Bogles doesn't need this because we just mulligan to our Bogle and do our thing. Like we don't need a cantrip to do that. But yeah, I can see Amulet Titan really wanting this as well. Um, And maybe like the Vizier combo decks, Mm -hmm. like the creature sort of toolboxy style decks, I can see them fitting it as well. For sure. However, um, going back to the Tron thing quickly. I will I will run like four of Once Upon a Time, but however, I wouldn't be surprised if I end up running like two or three. I don't need it in my opening hand. Like even if I draw it later on, it's still fine. Um, and I still want an amount of Sylvan Scryers. I don't want to cut them completely. It's just, I'm one of these people that likes to test things out. So I always put four in to begin with and then just cut down until, you know, I'm happy or it performs to what I expect. So, but yeah, I'm quite hyped for this card. I think it's going to do a lot of work. One question I have is, uh, so all the decks that you listed, and I think a lot of the decks that people are thinking about are sort of like combo-ish decks, like they're mm. cards that are looking for specific parts. I mean, does this card just get run for value? And like, you know, one of the decks that I've enjoyed the most lately that has green in it has been uh, Bant, uh, Bant Stoneblade. And there's a lot of creatures in that deck. And, you know, there's some there's some lands too. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm just wondering if like, I mean, is this card good enough to just be run as an impulse style effect in decks that happen to have... 20, 25 creatures in them? I mean, you're not running incubation incongruity. Do you know what I mean? So I think you have to look at the fail case and the best case scenario, right? So 
in your opening hand in a value deck, how valuable is that free spell for selection versus the two mana selection spell over something that you're not even running already for one mana in incubation? That's how I think about it. I mean, I think that's a great way to think about it. Do any of you think that this card is going to allow some decks to keep no land hands? Why? Um, okay, I have thoughts about this. <laughs> I am someone who plays fast mana in that I play Simeon Spirit Guide and Rituals. And I find that when you keep even one land decks with that, it can be sketchy because this can miss, right? This cannot hit. So in prison, if you keep a one land hand because you have, you know, an early blood moon or an early chalice, that's not even good enough sometimes. And that's a lot, like, I get that's a lot of cards. It's not exactly one-to-one comparison, but I think that the risk is too high for the reward to be worth it, so to speak. So I think that it could allow you to, and you could get rewarded, but you have to, I would have to see some simulations, computer generated, to really feel like I could vibe with that. (laughs) (laughs) The only final kind of closing thought I have about Once Upon a Time is that I think this is the only green card I have ever pre-bought. Wow. What? You pre-ordered it. Yeah, I pre-ordered a playset of it. I mean, I don't know, Emma, you might not know, but for years I didn't even, I had a single page for green in my modern collection in my modern binder and all it had on it was Birds of Paradise. (laughs) Disappointing. Uh, Yeah. Disappointing. It is disappointing. Green's the best color. (sighs) Well, we'll talk about that on maybe the next time you're on, we can each take a color and talk about (laughs) why it's the best color. But, um, so that's the only thing I could say is that I I did pre-order a set, uh, a play set of this card just because I'm pretty sure it's going to get played all over the place. So the card that I have the honor of uh, spoiling today or talking about today, analyzing today is a card that I think I will probably never even play because while it's a blue card, I feel like it's the type of card that I'm not uh, super into because it's broken. Uh, I'm kidding. So the card that I'm going to talk about is Buster. Yeah. Is Emery Lurker of the Lock. And I'm going to read it out in case people don't know. It is a Merfolk Wizard 1-2. It costs two generic and a single blue mana. And here's the card text. It's a legendary creature. The first line is a cost reduction mechanic. Ding. It says this spell costs one generic less to cast for each artifact you control. Oh, man. Affinity for artifacts. That's never done anything bad. Mm-hmm. Wait. No, that's not right. Totally fine. <laughs> so, never been a problem once. Never. Only a single time. Hey, that's only the first line of text. Wait till you see these other ones. Uh, Whoa. The next line of text is, when Emery Lurker the Lock enters the battlefield, put the top four cards of your library into your graveyard. Well, as we all know, mm. self-mill just means you're a little closer to death. So that's that's kind of a drawback. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kidding. Challenge. Sometimes putting cards in your graveyard is actually not bad. Sometimes it actually... <laughs> It can be good. That's right. And in the case of decks that are going to play this card, that might as well say draw four cards on it, uh, <laughs> I, I think. But hey, maybe maybe that's overstating. I think you could even make the argument that this card is twice as good as Thoughtscour. Ooh. I mean, I, I think in that shell, it certainly fulfills a similar role and does way more. What shell? Any shell that has artifacts in Emery. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty big shell. It's a big shell. It's a big old turtle. Um, and then the last line is, the, the, the wildest one, which is tap, choose target artifact in your graveyard. You may cast that that card this turn. You still pay its cost. Timing rules still apply. I love this reminder to text <laughs> that's like, you can't cast a, you can't cast a Mishra's Bobble at instant speed, silly person. But I mean, it's good to remember. <laughs> you monster. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So we're all agree that this card is 
kind of powerful and kind of like, what the heck were they doing when they made this card? Why is there not two blue mana in the mana cost? Why was there not one blue blue? Wouldn't that make more sense? Wouldn't that be a fun but still push card? One blue mana is insane. Like you, you can, there's so many zero cost artifacts and one cost artifacts. Yeah, it is so easy to consistently get this down on turn one if you want to. Yeah, don't step on my line, Zach. <laughs> I think obviously this card is super, super powerful and enables some wild stuff. So I, I have two decks I want to talk about it in right now to give examples of why Emery is so good. So the first one is Wurza, right? And I, I'm I'm not a Wurza player. I think uh, I, I do want to say that people have read it. Wurza players have read it. We have heard you here on the dive down and we, we I promise oh, yes, you we, we will do a dive down on Wurza at some point before something destroys the deck. Uh, not sure quite <laughs> one, but we but we will do it. But for now, this deck is definitely in the ascendancy. I say it's more than it's more of a case of when than if. I, I kind <laughs> of agree, but you know I don't want to rain on anybody's parade quite quite yet because they're getting a powerful new toy. So let's let's celebrate that. So the, that's this is the first place that people are thinking about this card. And in my mind, as someone again who hasn't is not a full initiate of the of the deck, uh, it's kind of like a redundant goblin engineer in in this deck in that it lets you find a combo piece, it lets you cast it from your graveyard, it lets me cast it again if you manage to kill it. So it provides that kind of resiliency, searching, and also in a lot of ways it does that redundant kind of card effect that we talked about from when we were trying to identify cards from the spoiler because it's another way to tutor up and replay your um, your artifacts. The, the thing that's also really interesting about it is that in this deck you can really easily cast it so that it's online on turn two, right? Basically... All you need is two of the eight zero-cost casting artifacts in your deck and a land that produces blue, and then you can play Emery. And so what we're talking about is like Mox Opal and Mishra's Bauble are kind of what the, the two sets there, and then you play an island, you play uh, Emery, and you're off to the races on turn two looking for, for pieces for your Thopter, Thopter Sword combo. Mox Amber. Next deck. Zach. <laughs> well, well, Dave, I think in your scenario that you're describing, you're casting Emery on turn one, and on turn two, you're getting that. That's card what I mean. That's, a, that's yeah. what you said. So, uh, you know, Emery will be online and ready to tap on turn two, is what I meant. Yeah. So, play at turn one, it's ready to go turn two. Um, so, it seems like it wonders, it makes me wonder if this card is going to be spell the end of Stoneforge Mystic in, in Wurza for <laughs> real. If there's really space for it in that shell anymore. People have had some success with playing the kind of blue-white based Urza deck where they have Stoneforge's alternate plan. Now that you have another four cards that let you search for combo pieces, I don't know why you would mess around with that. I'll maybe mess around with it out of the board or something like that to give you a different axis of attack. But it just seems like it makes the Wurza deck way more powerful and way more uh, consistent even than it is already. So so what do you all think about about Emery in Urza right now? It seems like an auto include. It's sort of ridiculous. This deck went from fringe to Urza to this and the timeline is like mountain peaks in terms of power. Are are you running four of these though? No. So usually legendaries don't run as four of because they're legendary, but I wonder if this card is so powerful that you want it as consistently as possible that it almost incentivizes you to run the playset. Yeah, I'm not sure in Wurza. I think that might there might be a disincentive to run it as a four of. You're right. I think in other decks where it is your main combo piece, uh, Emery is, maybe. Yeah, I think there's not a ton of ways for Wurza to ditch this card with, with the dungeon copies in hand. So I think because of that, there's not a way to filter that you're going to only run a few in the end. So I think that before we move on, I just want to point out, at its worst, I think in Wurza, like the sort of fail case with Emery is that it sort of is just this general utility card that 
maybe lets you just play Mishra's Bobble over and over again to draw cards while you look for answers. You know, you just get an extra draw every turn, you get an artifact trigger, all that kind of stuff. I also wouldn't be surprised to see this card make Mox Amber more relevant since it is legendary. And He's talking that about that next deck. Mox Amber. Yeah. So if that's the fail case of, of Wurza drawing Mishra's Bobbles, wouldn't it be amazing if there was an easy way to untap Emery and be able to do it over and over again? What? Oh, oh wait. Sounds fine. So there is a card that has kind of been on the fringes of modern for a while, and that card is, at least one of them, is Jeskai Ascendancy. So I think that this is the other kind of all-in home for Emery. And yes, as Zach and Stan have kind of asked, I think this is the car, the setup and the deck that makes, is one of the shells that makes Mox Amber actually a playable card now. Yeah, exactly. And in some ways, I think that's the secret power of Emery. It's like it's it's extra super power is that you get to play a deck. I mean, we all like Moxes, right? Decks with Moxes are good. Mm-hmm. Four moxes are good. In legacy, what about eight, you, 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 yeah. In vintage, you get to run like five. Yeah, how about eight? Mox yeah. sapphire. What about mox tantalite? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, we had one rule: yeah. no top, no mox tantalites. Emma, you can run as many mox tantalites as you want anytime that we play. I can't stop awesome. you because you're so far away. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think that this suddenly becomes a deck, this Jeskai Ascendancy deck. So just as a reminder, what Jeskai Ascendancy does is whenever you cast a non-creature spell, creatures you control get plus one, plus one until end of turn. Untap those creatures. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you may draw a card. If you do, discard a card. So basically what happens is with Mox Amber in, in this deck to help make it a little bit more more consistent and have more broken opens, it is really possible to be able to play Emery on turn one, have it ready to go on turn two, and then cast infinite uh, cast Jeskai Ascendancy on turn two with the mana that you have open, and then cast infinite Mishra's Baubles over and over again out of the graveyard as you cast it, untap Emery, cast it, untap Emery, go back and forth and back and forth, make a 20-20 or 30 30 emery or whatever you want and swing it for the kill on turn two now it's kind of christmas magical christmas landy in the sense that you need magical holiday land please oh yeah it's magical holiday landish because you need emery misha's bobble mox amber jeskai ascendancy island and another land so it's it's a pretty kind of like called shot kind of <laughs> land kind of thing but you do get to mill <laughs> called shot head one roll yeah <laughs> you do get to mill some cards in your graveyard to help find what you need from Emery. And then also, you know, it really is just three or four cards in a land. So there's ways to get, to get there, but um, it seems really powerful. And given that this card is already has a discovered kind of turn to kill. I just think that this is the kind of card that everybody's going to have a big circle around for a long time. And there might be three or four different decks that are built around leveraging the power of this card. And hey, if it makes Mox Amber a playable, which is a card that I've been waiting for a long time to be playable, um, I think that's a great thing, too. I for sure just bought four online, but that's unrelated to this. Yeah, what's interesting about this card to me is I was looking at it and I'm like, this is a this is a pretty novel card. But in a lot of ways, it's not novel at all. It just combines a lot of effects that other cards have as novel effects so you know it has cost reduction it has graveyard shenanigans it has graveyard recursion it has a very cheap activation cost and then it costs no mana it's only just tapping it so it does all sorts of things that would typically just be one ability on said card but this card does you know three things 
Emma, are you going to run uh, run any Emery decks out there? You think or don't think so. I don't. Artifact decks aren't not aren't traditionally what I usually play. I'll probably go up against it quite a lot though. So I'm going to pack some stony silences in my Bogle sideboard. <laughs> pack four. However, I will say, like any card that makes Matt Nass really excited, everyone should just be concerned about anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is that where we're at? I missed yeah, this, that. He's he's excited about this. <laughs> yeah. Very worrying. The, the math. The math. Yeah, yeah, this card is borderline dangerous. Um, it's borderline. Concerning. I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do a, a called shot of that. It's bad for the format, but I think it's it's it has all the hallmarks of dangerous cards. One of the things that I really don't like about this, and why I have fears and concerns, is that it's dodges both spell snare and spell pierce which used to be really great turn one turn two counter spells that you can use to beat your opponents on tempo and i don't i can't think of any one mana counters that you can use to deal with emery you can only use one mana counters to maybe deal with the cards that she's in the same deck with. i think the one mana counter you're looking for is path to exile but Ooh. <laughs> I mean, it, it does die to a lot of removal, but it, one thing that I thought was interesting in a similar vein to what you're talking about, Stam, is that it, it doesn't it doesn't die to Fatal Push unless you have Revolt, which is sort of Disgusting. annoying, too, depending on what your removal package looks like. So. Manative? Yeah. Big on Manative. Can I finally make Manative happen? Dude, I got got by Manative the other day playing against a cat tribal stoneforge mystic deck that manatized me that sounds amazing <laughs> it's like really i was bereft uh-huh. i was amazing. bereft after that that match but <laughs> so let, let's talk about another uh moderately powerful one two creature that will probably be impactful in modern that's hushbringer hushbringer is a one and a white creature fairy it's a one-two flyer with a lifelink, and it also has the text, creatures entering the battlefield or dying don't cause abilities to trigger. I'm, I'm sorry, could you could you repeat that real quick? Creatures, creatures entering the battlefield or dying don't <laughs> cause abilities to trigger. Hmm. So ignoring the incredibly bizarre art that Stanislav for some reason likes. <laughs> the only person I know who likes that art. <laughs> I heard it was rejected art for a Tori Amos album cover from about 1997. I heard it was found art from a Dio album, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a 90s kid. It brings me back to my youth. So the card's just so overtly good and going to be annoying <laughs> that it's something I felt I had to talk about. So for any deck that can run this, it offers some benefits over cards like Torpor Orb, which has the same you know generic mana CMC, which stops creature enter the battlefield effects from triggering, or even like a Takatli Honor Guard at the exact same mana cost of one and a white, which is a Torpor Orb on a 1-3 body, right? But I'm struggling to think of many reasons to play Takatli over Hushbringer any longer in modern, because it's not like humans wants the humans type line at all of Takali honor guard because it's going to stop all of the human ETBs and it's going to die to all the same relevant removal that Takali honor guard dies meaning Hushbringer will die to the same removal that Takali honor guard is going to die to the only thing really that makes it not be you know not being strictly better is it can't block a two power creature like Takali honor guard can and also you know there are two damage removal spells, direct damage removal spells that are running modern, but those are pretty fringy. But Hushbringer over Takatli or Torpor Orb stops both ETB triggers and death triggers, which is just crazy. 
because stopping ETBs is already really powerful and modern because it's hitting popular creatures like Urza, Lord High Artificer. It's hitting Stoneforge Mystic, Ice Fang, Coatl, Spell Queller, Vendillion Click, most of the humans deck, Kitchen Fink, Seasoned Pyromancer, Thought Knots here, Snapcaster Mage. You get the idea. Um, but now, though, you get the benefit of stopping death triggers as well. So that turns off things like Undying, like Persist, Modular, cards like Worm Coil Engine, Hangerback Walker, Mattery Shaper, Stitcher Supplier. They all lose these really modern, relevant death triggers. And on top of this, you get some evasion with lifelink, which might even help you stay alive for a little bit longer as the opponent's kind of digging for maybe their dismember in a human's deck, their only removal spell that can get this thing off the board and get their game plan back online. So I think that anyone who's running a Takatli Honor Guard in their sideboard now can really just consider this instead. It's still a major non-bow for decks that might ostensibly want to run it or can, you, know, you think you might want to run it, like a humans or a spirits deck or even white-based taxes decks now that they have uh, Stoneforge Mystic typically. But there's just so many creatures that this card's hitting that I think it's going to have a place in decks that run white that don't need these kind of ETB or death triggers. So um, going back to Bogles, um, I run Takati on a guard in my sideboard currently. Um this is uh, Hushbringer is becoming a strict upgrade onto Cardiana Guard because Bogles has no ETB triggers in the deck and it's just absurd. Ooh. And the two and the body is really relevant because it's got Life Link and it flies, so it's really evasive when I rancor it up with Ethereal Armors and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really good. I will note though, Torpor Orb is still relevant if you have Khan the Great Creator. I think you still run that. Yeah. In that package, but overall, I think you just run Hushbringer because it's awesome. Um. Does Hushbringer not cause the Umbra effects to trigger? No, nope, because it's a triggered ability. Now there you go. I looked this up. <laughs> I did my homework. <laughs> um, so so to- so Totem Armor is, is like a replacement effect, and and it's not a triggered ability. So um, this is why multiple Totem Armors don't just fall off when the creature would die. Ah, that's thank why you it's much. like a, a free roll. It's kind of like regeneration in that way, huh? Sort of. It's soft regeneration without the tap. Yeah. <laughs> so totally different, but pretty similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Half, halfway. <laughs> Where else do you all think that we could run a card like this? Because you know, it's, it's, it's tempting to just be like, okay, any white-based creature deck can run it, but so many of them do rely on ETB and Death Triggers. Yeah, so obviously a first thought is the Death and Taxes deck, the mono-white one. But it cuts off so many cards from that deck, like you just mentioned. So many of them have ETB effects, whether it be Splicer, Thought Not Seer, or Flicker Wisp. There are so many under the battlefield effects that are reliant for the deck that if you can't make them because of your own synergy, it's kind of getting in the way of you in a big way. I will say that when I played Mono White Eldrazi, I, run Taka- I ran Takatli Honor Guard in the sideboard of that deck as well and just kind of like took the bad effect with it because I needed it in certain matchups to just kind of like not get blown out. So sometimes you got to do it, even though some of your creatures get much worse as a result. I do think if in humans, it, it pushes you well over the tipping point. So there's something in the middle there. I do think spirits is a little bit of a question to me, and I might just be misremembering some of the cards that are in the, the deck, but it seems like there's, there's a little bit less problems there. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you, you give up some, some effects, like with Spell Queller primarily, um, but I think that, you know, and also Rattle Chains with its ETB hexproof effect. That doesn't get run all the time, though, anymore, right? Rattle Chains is sort of like on the bubble. It's a flexi slot, isn't it? I, th- I think it's gotten to be flexi, yeah, totally. Yeah, 
especially in bands. Um, in blue white, it's more typically ran. I wonder if it's just another good value to drop for a soon to be built value hate bears deck. So one that doesn't do a lot of ETB synergies, but one that's just finding a ton of ways to mm. tax your opponents while mm. you know just putting a bunch of two drops on the board. I think that's just challenging to build that deck right now without Stoneforge Mystic. Sure. And with and without Flicker Wisp. I just think like so many of those decks rely on those Trixie creatures that Zach mentioned. So I, I will say that deck to me is kind of I mean, you leave the green out and it's kind of mono white Eldrazi again because you have the ta- you have Thalia and you have Lena and Arbiter and, and that kind of stuff. And I, I think that there's space for Stoneforge Mystic to fit in that deck and maybe you take some of them out when you're gonna run Flicker Wisp for some reason or not Flicker Wisp, when you're gonna run Hushbringer. Does anyone else feel like we're almost talking ourselves out of playing this card and finding all the reasons why it's not gonna find a home in modern? I'm playing it. I'm playing it like hell. I'm I'm gonna pick up four on day. I'm gonna pick four foils, like, and be weirded out by the art. <laughs> no, there's definitely plenty of places for it. I mean, even Burn has been running some Takali Honor Guard sometimes. I think Soul Sisters wants it, like some sort of mono white Soul Sisters life gain kind of deck, because it's, it's got life link, so it's kind of relevant, um, and it just hoses a lot of strategies. Um, I will say when I so I used to play a lot of Eldrazi Tron once upon a time. Um, I played Torpor Orb in Eldrazi Tron, and yeah, it did switch off like my Fortnite series and whatnot. However, like when I played it, it affected my opponent more than me. Yeah, I didn't get the trigger of Fortnite here, but I have a four four, and your board does nothing because I have a Torpor Orb out. So I think I think Hushbringer is very similar in that regard. That's a good point. Yeah, Emma's right. I think that this is the kind of card that will have a home. It's not going to make a new tier one deck out there, but it will have plenty of ways to make people frustrated. And that's all I need from a card. Sorry. Yeah, it adds to the already impressive white r- roster of cyborg cards because white is yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> it's what it's all about. White is like, you can have the yeah. 60. I'm taking all 15 of these slots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stan, I'm, I'm very excited, though, for uh, to hear about your card. I think this is one of the mm. coolest ones. Yeah, Shane, I'm right there with you with cards that are annoying to play against. And surprise, surprise, I picked a blue card. What? It's the Brazen Borrower. One blue blue for a creature. Fairy Rogue. Flash Flying. Brazen Borrower is a 3-1 that can only block creatures with flying. But it goes on an adventure for one in a blue. And it performs some petty theft. Instant. Return target non-land permanent and opponent controls to its owner's hand. Instant speed's a really big deal for me. For both sides of these cards, to be honest. The fact that you can do a quick early game disruption spell, bounce some creature or other permanent, non-land permanent to the opponent's hand can sometimes operate like a time walk, like remand. Likewise, having access to a late game creature that you can pretty much threaten activation with at any time while holding up other types of interaction removal seems like a great strategy for lots of blue instant speed themed decks. So to me, I think this card joins the family of Nibble Obstructionist and Vendillion Click as a 3-1 Flash Flyer that interacts with the opponent's plan in some way. But I think the style of disruption that this card provides could make it more playable than the other three drops I'm mentioning. This is not to say that I think it's better, for instance, because I don't think Wizards Lightning decks are going to run this over V-Click or Nimble, since being a wizard is so important to those decks. But... Some blue base strategies that previously ran a singleton V-click might choose this card instead because it actually interacts with the board, something that neither of the other three drops did. 
Frankly, I could even see this replacing a card like Remand as a turn two tempo play that might set your opponent back a little bit while giving you a creature to use later on. Some possible slots that I'm thinking about this deck, and these are very much colored by the decks that I've been playing lately, are Blue Moon and Blue White Stoneblade. I think they could potentially replace V-Clicks with this, since it can both be an early time walk. Later on, it'll carry a sword. Maybe it'll block a flyer. But also, Blue-Black Fairies could probably replace some of their non-creature spells with this. Because while that deck currently runs a variety of counter, removal, and even hand disruption spells, I would think that increasing the number of playable fairies by adding one that doubles as an interactive spell could be a potential upgrade for that strategy. Stan, if I had to ask you to make a cold shot, do you think this will push fairies into a higher tier, this card alone? It's very good. I think there's a lot of interesting fairies in this set that are definitely going to be tested. I think this is probably the strongest one I've seen on mm -hmm. rate because it is two spells on one card. And it curves. It curves. I, it does have downsides, though, sure. which is what I want to get into next, because only blocking creatures with flying is an issue for me. And one of the things that I've always liked about V-Click and even Nimble Obstructionist is that sometimes there'll just be a three-mana removal spell that also, you know, in the case of V-Click, would let you peek at the opponent's hand as well. This is much less likely to be a removal spell in that regard. Um, maybe trading with a Spell Queller or Mantis Rider or Delver of Secrets will do it. I liked uh, how Jerry and Brian on Arena Decklist said that this was uh, helpful text to newer players as what you're supposed to be doing with this creature, which is beating down. <laughs> that is, whenever that text is on one of, one of these cards, I'm always like, that's fine. I'm just supposed to be attacking with my uh, my Falcon or whatever, this my 2-1 Cloud Elemental or whatever. It's not even a downside. One of the other downsides that I do see with this card is the fact that opponents will just always see it coming. So... On the one hand, I talked about it being in this adventure exile zone, really hard to interact with. You could flash in whenever as a perk. If you've got three mana up and two blue and it's sitting right there, your opponents know what you could potentially play. Likewise, countering the adventure side probably feels really bad mm -hmm. since you can't get the adventure back unless you get the entire card back. Right, So this card doesn't synergize with Snapcaster Mage. Like Maybe it'll go into a blue-green Eternal Witness deck instead. It's pretty balanced. I think it's got a lot of utility. Two relevant sides. Absolutely going to be tested. I'm going to try it in Blue Moon. I don't know what home it'll eventually find in. But if nothing else, the storybook adventure art is so beautiful that I want to just have a place out of those. Stan, I, I got to say, it's... A little bit surprising to hear you compare it to Vendillion Click, which is considered like one of the three best blue creatures ever printed. And I don't know if that has that same power level. To hop in here for a second, as someone who's played a lot of Vendillion Clicks, like Stan has too, I, I do feel like at this point it's probably a bit overrated in that sense. And maybe we should just be acknowledging that there aren't that many good blue creatures. <laughs> First and foremost, no good blue creatures. Right. When I first started playing Modern, you know, Vendillion Click was like a three of in, in many decks and Jeskai Control and things like that. And now I feel like it's definitely more of like a spicy one of that's nice to have because it's a little bit of disruption and it's a flying threat. And you can kind of like play that line between you get to cycle a card out of your hand or disrupt your opponent or attack. And so I do think V-Click is more powerful than this card, uh, kind of rawly but i feel like this card is a little bit easier to play and so there might be more moments where you feel like you want to do it and i love the point that stan said earlier about this being one that affects the 
board as opposed to being something that does all these other zones. One thing that I think is super interesting about this card is that this to me is like the perfect adventure design as far as a constructed card goes because I there are so few decks that would run disperse, right? And that's what this that's what the spell side of this does. And just because it's attached to a body that is a good aggressive card that is able for you let, lets you keep your mana up like stan said now you have this whole other dimension where you get to free roll a bounce spell and that's going to be annoying in the same way that suddenly getting a permanent bounce by cryptic command is annoying for people who aren't used to it you know what i mean you, i don't think people are used to having that effect on the board and it can change so many different things for a cheap cost that um i could see it being really helpful in some of these decks that just need a little bit of extra board interaction like blue moon so moving on, we've had Emma had a rare, Dave had a rare, Shane had a rare, Stan had a mythic. Guess what I got? I got an uncommon. We're talking Gromgully. So Gromgully the Generous, one, a red and a green. Legendary creature, Goblin Shaman. It's a 3-3. Three, three. With this crucial text, each other non-human creature you control enters the battlefield with an additional 1-1 one, one counter on it. So they get a 1-1 counter no matter what, and if they get multiple from an already existing ETB or effect, they get additional ones. So, why do I like this? Well, it's a goblin. Obviously, I'm into that. But what pushes this for me beyond, like, fun goblin tribal, pointing that out, is it procs on tokens as well. So it could easily say whenever a non-token, non-human enters, but it triggers off tokens. So things like Master or Legion Warboss are having their tokens and themselves pumped up. But aside from the cards that I'm actually playing or that I want to play, Red Black Goblins is a real existing deck right now. And it's a deck that sort of has been on the fringes and got pushed more playability. So Red Black Goblins runs, in terms of token making things, Mogwar Marshal, which makes a token on Ender Battlefield and Death Trigger, Pashalik Mons, which makes two goblin tokens per activation of their ability, Krenko, which either makes one goblin per tap or quite a few goblins per tap, all of which would get tokens, and also, Slinging Lieutenant, which is a card that I think we sort of slept on for Modern Horizons and has turned to be a pivotal part of this deck. And that makes three bodies on the battlefield. So that's three cards that trigger. So there are four cards currently that trigger from our good friend Grummy G. And there are lords in the deck that grant haste as well. So you're able to play a card like this and ideally attack with it, and then the next turn play a creature, trigger, and then attack with those. So if you're doing something like playing this right into Slingang Lieutenant, you're swinging with three three threes on turn four. Pretty good. Pretty good. So the biggest issue for me is the green pip and the mana cost, because Goblins is a red-black deck. Anti's Hovel is a very powerful red-black card. And in terms of red-green playable modern Goblins, all most of them that are even remotely close to good are hybrid mana. So you can play them already. And things like Vile and Caverner Souls that are in the red-black deck make this very easy to cast. Not easier, but easier. But there's no green mana, and sometimes you cannot have those cards, right? So I feel like this card is good and potentially opens up more space for goblins to exist in, and maybe we see some sort of Jun deck or some sort of three-color goblins moving forward. The ability to give woman counters to anything, especially non-token, is very, very good. And goblins, as I just mentioned, is quite capable of making tokens. Also worth noting real quick that Tin Street Hooligan is a card you might play in Red Green Goblins. It's a 1 and a red for a 2-1, and if you spent green to cast it, ETB destroy an artifact. 
And as far as I know, that is the cheapest way for a creature to destroy an artifact in general. So worth noting, very powerful, and it's not both vile, but I'm just saying overall, if this this is opening up a new deck space that I feel like people have not really taken a close look at. Quick question. Does this card totally get hosed by Hushbringer? Why would you do that to me? All right, Shane, your card's getting played. So it doesn't get hushed by um, Plague Engineer, though. Yeah. Hey! Ooh. Yeah, that's definitely helpful. I mean, this is a very Zach card to select, of course. I think it's really good. Thank you, Emma. Oh, it's a. I mean, the fact that like, it does, the fact that it says non-human just upsets me. <laughs> it's good with Murderous Red Cap. Oh yeah. Wait, and we even have a sack outlet in uh, Singlang Lieutenant, where you can sack it, and it's infinite persisting. So it's already built in, you say? And it's hybrid red black mana, you say? And you got Goblin Matron, you've got Goblin Ringleader. That's like a combo on its own. Like, yeah, yeah. I think Emma. I think Emma is a better Goblin's deck builder than you, Zach. Oh no. <laughs> Oh no, am I being replaced right now? <laughs> well, we're going to start a spin-off podcast where it's just the five of us talking about goblins every week. Who's in? Oh, if, don't even, don't even tempt me like that. <laughs> oh. uh, I totally forgot about Red Cap, though. That is a great point. I named a bunch of janky mid-range cards and then Emma goes, what about an infinite combo? Oh yeah, those are playable in Modern 2, I guess. <laughs> Zach, I'm really picking up everything you're throwing down with this card. And I also feel like it's a good enough reason to just stretch the mana. Play some wooded foothills, maybe some copper line gorges. Yeah, I mean, you could even play an unclaimed territory if you want, right? Like, especially if you move to a lot of heavy goblins decks, I don't see a reason why we can't see maybe goblins replaces humans. The Age of Men is over. Okay. Just run the exact humans land base. Just with goblins. <laughs> yeah, and, th- and then you play a three drop that doesn't impact the board and dies to bolt. Mm. Mm. Oh, but Shane what? had to show the fun mm. police is here, everybody. Yeah, wee you, wee you. Shane didn't say anything about the fact that Hushbringer dies to bolt and doesn't doesn't affect the board really either. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 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 a two drop. <laughs> you don't play it against bolt decks. I don't know. You don't play it against bolt decks. I see you have red lands. I'm going to pre-side before we begin. You just dodge those matchups. No, it's a cool card. I'm just mad it doesn't say including humans. Goblins don't like humans. You have your own that does that. <laughs> Thalia's Lieutenant already does that. I know, I know, okay. I know. Stop being greedy. So let's circle back to Emma, because I know she has uh, a choice card as her second pick, too. I have a Charming Prince, which is a generic mana and a white for a creature, which is a human noble. Human being important. Um, when Charming Prince enters the battlefield, choose one. You can scry two, gain free life, or exile another target creature you own, return it to the battlefield under your control at the beginning of the, of the next end step. One thing I really like about this card is that it's designed like a charm, like the charm cards, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty cool. Um, despite that, I think it goes in uh, modern humans, and I also think it's uh, slam dunk in Bansalwerda. I think being able to like blink reflector mages and meddling mages and Farley's lieutenants just seems really, really good. However, the issue you have is where, what do you, where do you put it? Because the humans 75 is pretty stacked as it is. There's not many, there's not many flex slots at all. So despite it being really good, I think you can't like run four of it. I think you have to run like two or three. Um, it, even then, it I think even then it's like a metacle because you know like the life gain is really good. So you know, modern's becoming really aggressive with like burn and mono red prowess doing really really well. 
you know, this this can just like slot in and just gain you some life. Um, I guess the question I have for Shane is like, how is this better than Night of Autumn? Well, it costs less, which is ideal, and it's also a human and not a not a dryad, which mm. I believe is the creature type on Night of Autumn. Yes. So you're able to use your Rainbow Lands to cast it, and just being lower on the curve is super helpful. Like I think right now, humans can feel a little clogged at the three spot. Like I really, I don't really love running ten three drop creatures in humans. I think the deck benefits being able to double spell often as possible, whether that's using your mana or using your aether vial if you're fortunate enough to have one. So, I think that, and I think the scry helps a lot too, because I've found that you know when you're in late game, when you're in top deck mode, you know you want to control that draw. That's really helpful. But I do agree with you, Emma, that finding the way to fit it in is really the biggest problem for the the few flex spots you have in humans right now. You know, do you feel capable of shaving some deputy of detentions? Do you feel capable of shaving some militia buglers? Do you feel like you can shave even a phantasmal image? That's where I would be going with it because Charming Prince doesn't really synergize well with phantasmal image. So I think that would be my first port of call. But phantasmal image is really good. So it's... you're sport for choice which is nice i guess but you're gonna have one hell of a headache trying to fit everything in you know what i kind of think this card could do Hmm. maybe Hmm. cut red cut mantis rider play a cleaner mana base do you think it's worth losing that explosive turn to play you get sometimes though no no it's not (laughs) that was very breathy and batman-y shane So broody. You mean like in terms like a taxes style deck, Stan? Like a blue white taxes? Well, I'm, I'm still thinking mostly a human shell. You might still play deputy attention, but I don't know if if Mantis Rider is your only red card and you are thinking about having too many three slots. The fact that this can play with your disruptive interactive creatures, I think is a little bit more impressive than what Mantis Rider does, which is just beat face. Yeah, but remember when we had our humans episode, Stan, when we talked about how often we just wanted to see a Mantis Rider off the top. Sure. I do want to say, though, that also during a humans episode, I felt like Phantasmal Image was hard to cast occasionally, and you'd have issues with naming a land on Illusion and later being not so happy that you couldn't make it for other colors. So I think there is something here that maybe this, if not this, then maybe one more playable human might push humans towards a cutting all non-human spells and focusing and cutting the colors, maybe being a two color deck. I mean, I think these are the big ideas we need to be able to figure out how to restructure a deck like this. I'm not sure this is like exactly where it's (laughs) going to go, but that kind of stuff should be on the table you know, when we're, when we're seeing a card like this, I mean, to me, I, I feel like this fits nicely in as a piece of utility. I, I like the call that this is just a better version of, um, that priest that gains four, for example, like the, you know, it's anti burn tech, uh, lonely missionary, I think is what that's called. But I mean, I think that's a, that it's a meta call is probably a great, a great way to think about it too. It's just another piece of utility that the human stack gets. Um, and I think Bant soul herder, is another great deck that this could go into, like you said, and uh, I, I like it. 
there's not a lot of cards in there that gain life, I feel like, right now without Kitchen Finks always being in it. And so having something that can scry or gain life is a nice option for that deck to have. Uh, I believe Bant Solhello runs like a couple of Frag Tusk, which mitigates the like the aggressive and the burn as well. Um, but yeah, it's just another effect that you want and it just grows the Soul Herder. So, you know, it's a slam dunk, I think. It's just, it's just really nice utility. I do think Charming Prince will probably see more play in humans, depending on the meta game. Like I can, I can foresee like a local meta game that's running like three of these. If there's like loads of burn or loads of mono red prowess, for example, um, and it's not terrible in the mirror either. Like that's one thing to note as well. Oh yeah, it's a great card. I can't wait to test it out a little bit. Dave, I'm so excited for you to talk about your Planeswalker because it's a Stan card. I think it's <laughs> it's very much a Stan and Dave card, right? This is this is where you and I overlap. Aww. Oh, how adorable. Aww. Maybe we can alter the art where it's the two of us instead of Will and Rowan. I think that would be amazing. God, I wish this happened off mic. <laughs> so at any rate, the, the card that I wanted to talk about second is the Royal Scions, uh, which is a Planeswalker. It's got two people on it, which is cool. I don't know if we have another one that's two people. Um, Ren oh, Renan Six. six. <laughs> the one hmm. that's warping modern right now. <laughs> that's funny. I forgot about Renan Six. Uh, so it costs one generic, one blue uh, mana, and one red mana. Uh, and it starts at five loyalty. It's a three-mana Planeswalker that starts at five loyalty. <laughs> They're doing this with every every three-mana walker good. these days has too much dang loyalty. So I was looking through Gatherer to look at all three-mana Planeswalkers and the loyalty that they started with, and I realized that most of the ones that start with around five are War of the Spark ones that only have minus abilities. And so the thing that's really mind-blowing to me is that the Royal Scion starts at five, and they have two pluses as, as the abilities. So... Seems good. So let's read those Seems pluses, shall good. we? Um, so the first plus one that the Royal Science has is loot. It's draw a card, then discard a card for plus one. Seems pretty good. I mean, I know that Merfolk Looter is not exactly an effect that always pops up in modern, but it's also not often on a permanent that it, that gains value as you as you loot. Um, the second plus one is target creature gets plus two plus zero and gains first strike and trample until end of turn reads a little bit like team or battle rage to me which i think is kind of interesting it's also this weird tension where you have to do this spellsy kind of draw cards planeswalker in a deck that has creatures to get full value out of it and then the ultimate that the royal science has is minus eight draw four cards when you do the royal science deals damage to any target equal to the number of cards in your hand it's a really interesting effect here in the sense that uh, it's any target, so you can actually like lava axe your opponent with this card if you manage to build it up to enough size to be able to help close out the game itself. So uh, for me, I'm really I'm more excited to play this than than any of the other spoilers that we've had so far, just because it's a really sweet blue red spell for <laughs> me, and that's just the kind of decks that I like to play. It's blue red. It's three CMC. It kind of draws cards. It checks a lot of boxes for me. Uh, I don't really care about planeswalkers that much, but you know it's cheap, so that makes up for a lot of stuff for me. Um, you know, we talked about the abilities already. The thing that I think we should talk about as far as the negatives with a card like this is that, you know, this is one of those planeswalkers that has the negative in the sense that it does not protect, quote unquote, protect ex itself, which people love to point out on planeswalkers as far as just saying like, hey, it doesn't immediately deal with a card on the battlefield. It doesn't immediately let you make a token that's able to block. Challenge. <laughs> Sustained. When it comes down and you pass the turn, it probably has six loyalty. What's Correct. a better way mm -hmm. to protect itself than the, being really hard to kill? Totally agree. That's a good point, Stan. Yeah. 
So those are the two kind of things that I think are bad. The other thing that it doesn't do is that I think it doesn't really give you a specific game plan. It's not necessarily a, a planeswalker that's about accruing value in the sense that like, you know, Jace has a ton of different utility kind of effects that it does. This one lets you loot and it lets you pump up a creature and then eventually it lets you lava axe someone or something, which I think are, are and draw a bunch of cards, of course. So I think that what's interesting about it is that it's such a Swiss army knife that it can go in a couple of different decks. And I feel like this design is actually really interesting because it's not just another Obnixilis. You know, it's not like that same template that's like plus draw a card, three deal with the minus three deal with the permanent, minus eight crazy ultimate. So I feel like this card is cool and could slot into two places in particular when I think about it now. The first thing place that I think it obviously goes is uh, blue red spells kind of deck. Uh, whether that is some kind of return to Arclight Phoenix. Um, I'm going to kind of like put a little plug in here for a card that I think is really cool. That's Thrill of Possibility as being another maybe card that could go to help Phoenix come back and also potentially Merchant of the Veil because those are um, instant speed discard and draw card effects that we don't really have too many of those on their own. But anyway, I feel like the plus one can help you do that. The the other plus one can combo really well with Thing in the Ice if you want to attack if you manage to get that online and then flip an attack with it with Trample. Um, I also think that this card could be pretty good in a Kiln Fiend deck because one of the problems with Kiln Fiend is that you have to attack in with it, and if it doesn't have Trample, uh, it has it keeps low toughness, so it often dies in combat. So you have to make sure that you're able to kind of have it survive. And the giving it first strike helps it do that in addition to giving it trample. So I really feel like it's kind of like custom made for Kiln Fiend as well in some ways, uh, which is a card that I've been playing a little bit in Monred Prowess. I think it's getting more popular. We'll see if it sticks around. Can I add a deck that I think this could potentially slot into pretty easily? Yep. Blue, red, Emrakul through the breach. Okay. Get rid of excess combo pieces. Make your Emrakul trample so it's not getting blocked by a Thopter. Also, it makes your Snapcaster survive combat a little bit more often. Yeah, which is pretty interesting too. I think the other deck that I think this has a spot in is Grixis Death Shadow, honestly, because Grixis Death Shadow can use all of these different effects. It's like an extra team or battle rage. It's an extra way to cycle through the deck. It gives you long-term value that you can build up to that ultimate. So I think that's a cool deck I could slot into too. To quote the immortal Shane Beeps, what are you taking out? Uh, I would probably shave i think you could shave a lightning bolt i think you could really? shave yeah i mean there's a, some of them only run one or two right now i think you could shave a um you could shave a team or battle rage and only run one i don't know we'll see yeah emma's like no way on that i mean team or battle rage wins games <laughs> i think this can win games too though if you attack with a 10 10 you get to do it twice at least but i agree i think it's more of a cyborg card though for Grixis sister shadow oh that's interesting i think i would want to side into it if I'm playing a if I'm playing against a deck that slows me down, I think the Royal Scions could easily accru accrue value to to the point where you can just kill them. I don't think it's main board, but I do think I could I could see it replacing like Jace Friends Prodigy, for example, or like a Liliana mm -hmm. Last Hope or something of that ilk. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something definitely interesting to try, and I'll probably try it because I, I do play Gref uh, Death Shadow as well. Um, it's definitely one to consider. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it. it doesn't have to be a main deck card. It's true. I definitely don't think it's more of a two, more than a two of in any deck, though. I'd probably play as a one of. Yep, or one. Yeah, it's not like you're going to run a play set of these things. No. 
I just want to hit one more card I think is pretty cool that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about. It's Claim the Firstborn, mm. which is a red sorcery that gets it's a threatened effect for creatures with CMC three or less until end of turn. So you basically grab a creature from your opponent, untap it, and it gets haste until end of turn. So 41 of the top 50 most played creatures in modern can be snagged with this. There's only nine that are over three CMC. So it's a really efficient threat and effect, right? And in modern, efficiency is everything, especially the types of decks that are going to want to run a spell like this, I think. So I I see kind of utility for this card against like threat-like decks where a a single use of this spell could create a large enough swing that you could take over the game or just win. So obviously there's things like Death Shadow. There's... Stoneforge mirrors even where you could strand you could grab their Stoneforge, activate it to get something that's stranded in your hand. You could kill that germ token to leave that batter skull on the board for a bit. You could grab something like a plague engineer that could then pump up your entire team that they weren't expecting. Sacrifice decks aren't really popular in modern, but it certainly could use that really efficient effect to nab an important creature on their side and then sacrifice it for a benefit on your side. But a weakness is it doesn't blink or reset the creature. So you can't reset a meddling mage, a deputy of detention, spell queller, things like that. So you can't really do anything beneficial there. But I think this has some play. I don't think it's going to break anything wide open, but I think it has some play. Yeah, especially if a sacrifice deck emerges like this and carrion feeder seem amazing. I guess the thing that I've been trying to figure out with this card is that I think it's super useful. I just don't know what deck would actually devote the space to run it. Yeah, yeah. I would be tempted to run like a couple in mono red prowess sideboard just to break break the aggression. Yeah. Oh, because prowess can be really vulnerable to blockers. Mm. Yeah. So get a blocker out of the way, just, just, trigger prowess. Yeah, just just open the gates pretty much. Ooh. But no, Shay makes a really good point. Like most of the creatures are what free free power or less or. For example, so free CMCLS. Yeah. So you know, it seems really good. I mean, again, it feels like another like a medical kind of thing. But with mono red prowess has one trouble. It's just like pushing through damage. So if that gives me a way to do it, then sure, like why not? And it, I can kill death shadows with it. Do you think it'd be helpful in like a aggro matchup for mono red prowess, where if your whole thing is you want to go faster than them, right? Like yeah. you don't want to try to lower your pace and meet them in the middle. Mm. So if they're playing goblin guides or eidolons, it's better for you to snag that and swing with it and hope they have to chump block it as opposed to trying to meet them in the middle. It depends on the creatures. I'm not too bold if I'm like, I'm not excited to take an eidolon or a goblin guy because it doesn't really do much. However, like Tarmogoyf, I'll take. Death Shadow, I'll take. Like Scavenger News, Tireless Tracker, I'll definitely take. Um... Like, yeah, it's just I just feel like it might be a good mirror breaker in some instances. I don't I don't think it's one to sleep on. I think it's pretty good. So there you have it. Don't sleep, folks. Those are our Throne of Eldraine picks for this week. Special thanks to Emma for joining us and sharing hers with us. We're going to take a very quick break. When we return, we're going to wind down with a listener question. Maybe if we have time, we'll do two. Tune in to find out. We're going to leave the plane of Eldraine for the wind down, take a step back, go to our house, sit in our chair, think about our lives. And we're answering our listener question from friend of the show, Josie. Josie asks, we're back to regular release schedule and very few bigger modern events occur until next year. What do you plan to do during this break in the action? Did this blockbuster Summer of Hogak wipe you out? 
And what are your plans for magic in the next six months? Emma, as our guest of honor, what are you doing in the next six months with regards to magic? I don't know, to be honest. Like in Europe, it's a lot, it's much weirder. So, um, because <laughs> there's, there's in the sense that we don't have many like high like headline events like for example in America you have SEGs and they happen very regularly whereas our our big events are like two GPs a year and they've already gone so um, in terms of what I'm doing I'm probably just going to jam a load of modern on Magic Online you know I want to play loads of Death Shadow and Modern Red Prowess at the moment so I'm just going to fiddle around with those with Eldraine cards and just see where it goes. Um, in terms of events, there isn't a huge amount. I'm just gonna. I might play like the, a couple modern challenges, for example. But otherwise, just gonna grind out with random decks. Did the Hogak Summer wipe you out? I know that was a feeling that a lot of modern players shared. I didn't. So it was a weird time for me because I was quite busy with like content stuff at the time. So I didn't really get to play it much. But just hearing about it and being around it was quite exhausting. <laughs> Second and Hogak kills. Yeah, it's just very exhausting. Um, and it kind of put me off a little bit. And I didn't play Bogles in that time because Bogles is awful because they make a 8-8 trampler on turn two and I can't beat that. Um, <laughs> That's my yeah, um, <laughs> um Yeah, it, it did wipe me out. But at the same time, I'm glad Modern's had a, another soft reset and hopefully this will be the last one for a long time because in the last four months, Modern has gone through a lot and it would be nice just to see it settle for once. And just, you know, like Stoneforge Mystic doesn't look to be warping the format either. So I'm actually quite excited to see what happens. I'm going to piggyback a little bit about what Emma said with regard to Stoneforge and answer Joe's question. One of the things I'm looking forward to doing in the near future is playing more Stoneforge. I got my Stoneforge playset. I got my artifacts from Joe C, in fact, who asked this question. <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, I'm really excited to see what the right shell for that is. Like, I've got Jeskai, I've got Blue-White, and maybe it's something else entirely. We'll see what happens. But, you know, it's such a powerful spell that I'm learning to play for the first time. And, like, learning how to evaluate the swords has been a really fun adventure in and of itself. So, I don't know where I'm going to be at, whether this is going to be my new favorite deck. But having this really fun toy to play with is just making me super happy right now. Yeah, I'm just looking forward to jam. You know what I mean? I think that we have some time to play. We don't, I mean, I don't think I have to prep for any MCQs. I can just play Magic Online. I can just test some some new cards and some old decks. I think that I'm a little bit worried about what some of these Eldrian cards are going to do to modern, but I think by and large, we are in a period where things can shake out. And so I'm hopeful to just enjoy that for a bit. Yeah, for my personal response, as you know, did the blockbuster summer of Hogak wipe me out? I feel like I thought it would have, but instead I feel invigorated. And like, I feel like I was worried about modern and I had so much graveyard hate. And now I get to change things out. And I feel like I've been, you know, waffling back and forth between mono red prison and scred. And I just feel like there's a lot of opportunity and excitement in modern right now where Stoneforge is back and where does she go and what is good right now and is Wurza unbeatable etc so I'm really excited and I guess we can check it in a few weeks and see if I'm still excited but I am looking forward to the future of our favorite format the way I see it is if you survived Eldrazi winter you can survive Hogak summer because <laughs> Eldrazi winter was a lot worse <laughs> <laughs> the great war was nothing old yep. chap yeah that was something else it was really something else. I, I was really mostly just watching at that point in time because I was kind of not fully committed to Magic Online yet, but that was uh, that was the worst. 
I thought watching Splinter Twin endlessly was bad, but clearly not. Uh, speaking of Splinter Twin, I'm just going to continue to keep running all of my fake Twitter accounts asking for a Splinter <laughs> Twin to be unbanned. So it is unbanned. It's called Kiki Jiki Mirror Breaker. <laughs> Ooh, level three, Emma. Level three. <laughs> I thought it was Felidar Sovereign. Yes. That too. There's two choices. All of you are wrong. It's Sahili. This free. <laughs> so I'm just going to do kind of the same things that you guys are talking about. Although I think I am going to kind of stick close to trying to see if Mono Red Prowess can still be good. I loved the deck before the ban. I'm I'm back in on it now. So let's see where it goes. Really, I think it's really good at the moment. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just so quick, so explosive. It's... If we had more time, I'd be asking you to why you're thinking this because I don't see any results, but we're out of time. We got to, we got to stop. I mean, there were two in the MCQ at uh, Atlanta. Yeah, two, two in the, in MCQ. the MCQ. Two. Yeah, how many MCQs MCQ. have taken place? A zillion. I don't. At any rate, you don't get to. You don't get to give us cross examination on our answers to the wind down. You don't get to run your mouth at them, Shane. I don't look at results. I play bogles. Like, you don't get results. <laughs> exactly. Um, the other thing I'm going to do is just continue to do the. Th- the things that I do, which is basically stay up from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. on the weekends and play play ma- Magic Online while my, my family dude. sleeps, and then um, <laughs> that's just kind of what I, what I do anyway. So, I mean, that's kind of what I've always done. I'm kind of this eternal. I'm the I am the watcher in the night. Nice. I am the nice. person who sees what what uh, decks are out there in Europe because I think I play people in Europe mostly. Europe uh, really do enjoy Tron, so enjoy playing Tron late at night. Oh, I do play a lot of Tron late at night. It's totally true. It's just Emma. It's Emma over and over again. <laughs> it's all of her fake MTGO accounts. Yeah. I, I did recently do a league with Teamer Kikijiki, and that was Ooh. medium fun. Uh, Ren and Six into Kikijiki was really weird and wild. So mm. Another deck I want to revisit, which I think might be quite good, is Jund Living End. Because everyone's just sided mm. out Graveyard Hate and Living End is just really good with these creatures about. So I feel like that could be fine for a while. Not not the, the fancy as for told bad Splinter Twin version. Just just <laughs> traditional Living End I think might be quite good as well. So we've definitely run out of time. But before we call it a wrap, Emma, where can people find you? Where Where can people read your stuff, see your streams? Are you on the internet? I am on the internet. We do have that in England, just so you know. Um, with a ham, it's, it's got a hamster wheel running it and everything. Um, um, so you can find me on Twitter at mzyne. So that's e m m m z y n e. You can also find me on Twitch under the same name, and I also write for TCG Player now. So yeah, Tuesday mornings my TCG articles go up. They're weekly. I talk a lot about Budget Modern, which focuses on looking at standard cards which you can use for modern application. Um, my article this week looks into how you can build Mono Red Prowess on a budget. And uh, also Vampires, which is a super good standard deck, which you can port into modern as well. Right on. And we'll have links to all of your stuff in our show notes. So if you want to find Emma, just look at the show notes of this episode and it'll port you right over there. So that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon, where joining at any tier gets you access to our Slack channel, 
get to interact with us and fellow listeners all throughout the day. Also, shout out to ManaTraders.com for sponsoring the Dive Down. Sign up for ManaTraders using promo code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, for 10% off your first three months of renting paper or magic online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and bake ginger bread!